Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 161. And my guest this week is none other than Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem. I am uh, I'm thrilled this happened. Um, I met Brian very briefly many years ago, many, many years ago at a uh, Reading and Leeds festival, but it was very brief and I doubt I made any sort of a lasting impression. Um, but then, uh, you know, if time goes by, uh, I ended up doing um, a couple episodes of their drummer Benny's podcast, which is called Going Off Track. Um, and then Brian and I became kind of Internet friends then he stopped by when we played with the Menzingers last year when we were in New Jersey. And uh, just what a lovely guy. So I felt, you know, more comfortable reaching out to him for this uh, episode once that all happened. And uh, I'm thrilled. They have a brand new record coming out at the end of this month. It comes out October 27th. It's called History Books. They've dropped a couple singles off of it. One of them being a song called History Books featuring none other than Bruce Springsteen, which is super cool. Um, when preparing for this interview, I pulled up the video of, of, uh, Springsteen coming out and joining them in, uh, at Glastonbury. And we, we actually get into that conversation and the story behind it is just, it's crazy. I, I think you're really going to love it. Um, they're also on tour right now, by the way, they're on tour in the U S and if you happen to be hearing this from Wichita, Kansas, I know there's a huge Wichita, Kansas base for this podcast. Uh, go see them tonight. Cause that's, uh, that's where they are. Also, if you are new here, I want to let you know that there is a bonus episode available right now where Brian answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month to get access to that, plus all of the bonus content that we've already made over there. It would mean a lot. It helps support the show. Um, also, you know, subscribing on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. That helps a lot. Positive rating and reviews makes my whole goddamn day. All of those things that everyone asks you to do. There's a reason because it's important and it helps. Um, let me take care of a little business before we get to the uh, actual interview here. Um, if you happen to be here because you are familiar with the band I am in, Touche Amore, 
we just announced on Monday a remastered, remixed version of our third record is Survive By because it's 10 years old. And um, you can hear a single off of that. We'd put up the title track, the remixed, remastered version of that. And if you are a champion of physical media, we did some uh, really elaborate, over-the-top, super cool uh, reissue vinyl for it. There's uh, a bunch of different colorways and actually five different versions of cover art um, where actually inside a different member wrote an essay kind of reflecting back on their uh, their time with this record. And um, yeah, so those are individual. We're not giving away whose version is who just yet. We think that's going to be kind of fun for people to kind of be surprised when those arrive. But you can uh, pre-order that at deathwishinc.com. And uh, if you want to listen to the remixed, remastered version, just, you know, go wherever you stream music. Also, just a quick reminder, we are going to be supporting Deaf Heaven towards the end of this year. They're doing the 10-year anniversary of Sunbather, so we're going to be supporting those shows. Uh, we're playing a lot of the major cities. It's uh, San Francisco, New York. Let me see if I can actually do this off the top of my head. San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Denver, Austin, Boston, New York, Philly, Washington, D.C. I think that's it. But we are all still going to be playing a one-off show in Dallas where we're headlining and uh, it's going to be awesome. We're playing with a great band called Record Setter, another great band called Pale Fade. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful, the talented, the fucking sickest goddamn songwriter. It's Brian Fallon. What's up, Brian? It's so nice to see you. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to it's so nice to do this. You're someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time, but I just like never found the right opportunity for myself to be like, ah, today's the day to pull the trigger. But I saw you have this tour coming up. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Gaslight's obviously reunion, new record. So this feels like the right time. So thanks for making yeah. yourself available. Of course. Um, I mean, how are you feeling at this point? Like, is, is this the first like full Gaslight tour in a while? Like, like a longer one? Uh, no, we did, uh, two last year. We went to Europe once and then we did like major cities in the U S just real quick, but it was, it, it, they were like, you know, three weeks long. It was good. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, is this the, is this this one coming up the first one you're going to be playing most uh, like more new material on though? Yeah, I would say so. We have to sort of get that together. <laughs> yeah. How's it been rehearsing those new songs? good because we don't we don't rehearse at all so Truly. yeah we are bad at that we, we we basically just rehearse on our own so everybody rehearses and then they they go and they you know and then we get together at soundcheck but we do have two days where we rehearse before every tour so we okay. meet up for two days and then rehearse do you guys have like the practice space that you've always had or are you at the point where like you have to like do a hourly kind of spot yeah, we have nowhere. Like, we, there <laughs> is, we've never had anywhere, and it's terrible. Like, maybe we had somewhere for like six months one time, but um, that's it's really a hard thing to do in New Jersey. I would. That's what I was going to ask because it's like you know, obviously, the upside of being in a place like L.A. or you know, New York or something like that is you know, you can find a spot relatively easy. But I know in more suburban spots or things like that, it's like not as common. Oh, and even like I sometimes I like look on the Instagram and I see like quicksand has like a spot like right in the Lower East Side. And I'm like, man, like, how do you have a spot in Manhattan? Like, <laughs> they're probably grandfathered in. 
Yeah. yeah. It's always like, well, you know, my grandmother's been living here since the fifties and now it's five. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Um, well, yo, uh, so you're originally from Red Bank, right? Yeah. So I never had been there. And then um, when I when we hung out for a second, uh, when we did those Menzinger shows in New Jersey, yeah. uh, before we started that tour, we were like we had done a full Europe thing and then like had like five days between tours. And we didn't want to go back to L.A. So we basically stayed near Red Bank for like a few days. And yeah. I really took in the town. It's very pretty. Uh, it's cool. Yeah. You got the Kevin Smith store. Uh, I'm yeah. sure that's a tourist attraction. <laughs> it um, is now, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was curious. So, like, when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house. I had read that your mom like played in like a like a folk band, things like that. So yeah. I'm assuming there was a lot of music in the house. But would you remember the thing that you found on your own that kind of gave you a sense of identity? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that kind of was my first real thing, well, I, you know, it's weird. Like, I think that gave me a sense of identity would be different. But um, we didn't, you know, there was like a record store on the, there wasn't a lot of stuff going on in Red Bank in the 80s. It was just like a, that that kind of blew up in, in the late 90s and 2000s, especially when the, uh, the, um, the, what's his name, Kevin Smith, when that, yeah. when those films came out, everybody started like that town took a big, big, uh, flip. So it was, it was kind of not really anything going on when I was a kid, but, um, the first, I don't know, like the first thing I really took to, I mean, when I was young, like, like by myself, it was like, I really liked fifties music when I was like seven years old. I had like a, like a soundtrack compilation and it had like La Bamba on it, like that song. And like, it had like, do you want to dance? Like the one that the Ramones covered and, and like, like Odonna was on it. And like all these like really old 50 songs, Blue Moon. And like, that really was the first time where I was like, oh, I want to hear that song again, you know? And yeah. I had to like, like rewind it. Interesting. Did you find yourself then when you got into more like modern rock stuff did you gravitate to bands like uh like teenage fan club stuff like that that sort of almost tries to capture that sound a bit like the old sort no. of like, oh man i imagine you'd <laughs> be so crazy. down yeah i i kind of went into the I, well social distortion came oh, up that'll do it yeah right away and then um I, I my friends were like into really hard rock. Like yeah. they loved like the I don't know, like they they were listening to like Exodus like way before you know, like they were like thrashers and their older sisters were all like driving Camaros and stuff. You know, I mean, it <laughs> it's the Jersey Shore. So, you know, I had a there's a heavy like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, solo records, that kind of thing. And then mixed with this like punk thing that I kind of discovered and I was like What's happening to me? <laughs> so, so when you when you were listening to that stuff, like, was that a thing that when you connected with it, you then were able to bring to parents and be like, "What should I like? Could you tell me about this?" Like, was it like Richie, you know, like obviously it was like Richie yeah. Valens and Buddy Holly. I'm assuming stuff like that. Yeah, my mom, my mom knew a bit about it, and and they they would tell me like, my mom would be like, "Yeah, you know, this song or that song, or you should try this, or if you like that." You know, and she would play like 
run around Sue, like the Dion records. It was very, there was like a sort of weird New York twist too. Cause I somehow found like the, like the dead boys and that kind of stuff where they all covered those songs. So totally. Yeah. They did like hang on Sloopy and like these songs that, that to me, I was just like, well, these are just like 50 songs, but like on heroin. And it was right. Totally. It was a weird vibe. Like it, cause I did not fit in. <laughs> I was not into it. Like, I mean, you know, half those guys were dead by the time I discovered them. It's true. So, yeah. yeah. It was really like, you know, weird, but the Ramones were cool. I could get the Ramones and I understood that. Um, so you're like a few years older than me, um, just by a couple, but I know I'm just, I, it's always fun when I talk to someone closer to my age about, um, you know, how grunge hit them and things like that. And I know that Gaslight covered Sliver and things like that. So like, I'm wondering if, did that turn into you getting into like alternative rock in the early nineties? Yeah. Well, so the alternative rock thing in the nineties, that was probably like three years after this. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, you know, that was like, that was ours. And it was like, I was showing my mom instead of my mom showing me. And I was like, mom, check it out. Like these guys in Temple of the Dog, like they have this other band. And then like, they have this other band. They, and then the other half have another band. And then you got to listen to this. And this is what they're doing. And they, they're like punks, but they have like long hair and like, they have like flowers on their clothes, you know, like this is cool. And then I felt like I fit in because it like the punk thing was it was too rough in the, in, in like, cause it was really close to the, you know, it was in CBGB. So it was like, yeah, it, that was like prime New York hardcore time. So it was not a New York city was not a place you could visit. I mean, not as a kid from New Jersey totally. who was like 10 years old, you know? Yeah. So, so the, so the grunge thing really, I don't know. It made me feel like I had something and it was my, this was my thing. Totally. No, I do you remember the first album that you bought with your own money and would it have been in that like if you had an allowance or something, what did that would it have been probably one of those like grunge era albums? Yeah, it was it was ten. I bought ten. And it was the big like the big oh, like the, ki- the long box. Yeah, the kill the environment box, yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. It's I so funny. That. I talked to somebody about this recently and it and it totally broke their brain. And I'm curious if you have any recollection of this. Mm. What did you do with the long box? Would like, is it just the wrapper? And what was inside? Was it inside the jewel case? Or okay. what was, yeah, <laughs> do you remember? Because I'm kind of I, okay. Tell okay. me. So here's here's the thing. Like, so it was the long case, right? Yeah. And there, and the top half of it was the CD, then the jewel case. Oh. So okay. you would, and then the bottom was nothing. There was nothing. So you, it was just cardboard. Yeah. So what you would do is you would take the CD out of the top, like a cereal box kind of, and you would, you would take it out and then I would get scissors, right? And I would cut the, the front cover off and then the back cover off. And I would like, if they were, if the front, whatever was cooler, I would hang on my wall. And then the oh, other yeah. parts, I would make like collages you know like so i because I, I i love to draw so i would like draw stuff like about the songs and then like take this track listing and like the logo from the side like nothing was wasted in my life oh <laughs> we that's had, amazing we had nothing so nothing yeah. was wasted you know yeah I've, I've always wondered like what kind of uh archivist sort of collector 
uh, person exists that that hunts those long boxes down. Cause like you never, you never see them. Like they feel like they were just completely wiped. Like even when you go into the cool, you know, secondhand record store, you never see them like behind the counter on the wall as like it's rare true. items. It's like, they're just wiped, you know? Are there pictures of them still on the internet? Like, I mean, they... there, yeah, there are. And that's what led me to wondering. Cause like, I remember them being around, I was born in 83. So like, I remember them yeah. being around, but I don't, I don't think I ever owned them because I was still buying cassettes up until when I think they just became regular jewel cases, you know? Yeah, I got the so at the cassette time, I think there was a lot of blank cassettes going on. Like yeah. I, one of us, there was like three, three of us, I think, friends, three or four. And, and we would all get our allowance together. And then like one would buy one record, one would buy the other record. And then we'd, we'd copy them for each other. So like when Use Your Illusion came out, like one of us bought one and the other one bought two. And then we'd genius. copy it. For, yeah, right? Total genius. Um, <laughs> to, total side tip. <laughs> Total side tangent, by the way. I don't know how you land on Guns N' Roses in 2023. I don't know if, but I gotta say, I had yesterday for whatever reason, I was like, I don't know that I've ever listened to the non singles on Appetite for Destruction. So I put on like track two, a lot of cowbell, a lot, lot of cowbell going on on that album. <laughs> there's some wild, wild lyrics going on in Guns uh, N' Roses. 1000%. Like, there's some stuff. <laughs> I say is a little problematic. One thousand um, percent problematic. But I was just like, st- like it was also just like struck me and like how non-single sounding those songs are too. Like it's always fascinating when you hear those records. Like I feel like Bush Sixteen Stone is a pretty good good example of when you listen to that album. The singles are so fucking clearly singles, and the songs that are not singles are really not hooky and not a lot going on <laughs> there's not a lot going on it's it's fascinating it's it's yeah it, it really does kind of like spotlight that time in alternative rock where um you would end up buying the album for the one song and yeah. then that's kind of the only song you'd end up really listening to on the one album which is you know an expensive hobby well yeah that second i mean speaking of bush the second record that song swallowed yeah. It was the only yeah. song I liked on that record. And I was so bummed because the first one had like know, five or like six. Six singles. Yeah. What happened here? <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And I remember being in, getting excited because I think Steve Albini did that record too. And I think they really? were trying. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So what was your first concert? Oh, first concert was awesome. So we... So originally my first concert was supposed to be the year before and I was 10 and it was when whatever, no, I don't know if I was 10. It was whatever year Motley Crue got a different singer. Okay. So what I remember is I was supposed to go see Motley Crue with a different singer. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Like that guy was in, you know, this other band. And I was like, it's cool. We're going to go see Motley Crue, whatever. Cause my parents were like, I'm going to take you to a big concert. And, we're, and I was like, okay, cool. And then they canceled, I guess. Later, I found out actually recently that the tour sold so badly that they canceled. So that's what happened. Was, then, okay, let me ask. Is, so this is as grunge is first. about to break, right? Yes, so this, this is, is like grunge is breaking. Like this right, is so, happening. Yeah, so they're, str- they're now floundering. They're like, they're what are we? Yeah, okay, okay, go on, please. So, so then, um, it, it, and it's like kind of that like Lollapalooza era grunge industrial thing happening. 
where like ministry was on the radio. So all of a sudden, and you're like, wow, that guy's cool. So weird. Then it was, so my parents said, just look at the program for the, there's like a mini arena over here in, in down the shore in PNC bank. And it was like called something else back then. But uh, they, they had the list of shows and the only bands I knew were Depeche Mode and Primal Scream. And I was like, they were on tour together. So I was like, okay, Depeche Mode. I want to go see Depeche Mode. And I don't know that I ever heard a Depeche Mode song before in my life, but that ended up being my first concert. And I loved it. Like loved it. It was like music cut for me. I was just so into it. And, and it blew open the doors for so many other things. Damn. Yeah. It was what wild. A, yeah. And it, I feel like that's that that's like childlike curiosity at its best where maybe just yeah. the name sounds really intriguing or like maybe yeah. the logo caught you and then it just opens up your entire world. <laughs> I think it was the like songs of faith and devotion tour or it was, you know what? No, it was the tour that they did right after one Oh one. So, and that or violator. I don't, I don't remember. It's too hard to remember, but uh, it, I was like, song after song after song i was like there are no bad songs they just kept playing and i was like there's not one bad song yeah so and it was just the, and it was just those two bands primal scream and depeche mode no the the opening band was this band called stabbing westward oh yeah was, i know yeah. oh yeah they were it's funny i i don't remember what episode it was on but or whether it was off mic or whatever but i was reminiscing with a friend who plays in like an industrial band here in la about the like watered down major label uh, attempts mm. at another Nine Inch Nails that there was, and I actually like some Stabbing Westward songs, Me but too. like, but them and um, what was the other one? Uh, oh my, Gravity Kills is another oh. one where it's like uh, I could see the major label trying to like find themselves their own Nine Inch Nails, yeah. but it just didn't click the same way, you know? Not at all. It was uh, rough. So. When I know, you know, as I mentioned, like, I know that uh, your mom played in like a folk band and stuff like that. So when did you start wanting to play music and was guitar your first instrument? Well, so yeah, like right around then was like the time that I was I was like, OK, I, I you know, I want to play something. And actually, my parents were like, if you agree to, to play, you have to play for six months and then we'll buy you the guitar. So we'll, we'll pay for the guitar, but you got to play for six months. You got to commit to lessons six months. I said, I can do this. So they bought me this like guitar. It was like a Charvel Jackson Strat. And um, it was good enough for me. And um, I, I played that guitar forever. And uh, it, it did me well. And then I think as my like phases changed, I just put different stickers on it. So it was like... <laughs> <laughs> the evolution so of a young guitar player exactly yeah it was like he just put you know different stickers and he like drew stuff on it i remember and then um yeah like it just it, that was the first one and then i stuck to it and off from there did you did you take to lessons like were you a good student or were you trying to just have your guitar teacher teach you how to play songs you wanted to learn well, I, I was a bad student. I just wanted to learn chords so I could write my own songs. So I was like, listen, you know, he, he was a metal guy and he loved metal. So I was like, where do we meet? And he, we could meet on Guns N' Roses, funny enough. So 
he he was like, okay, cool. I'm going to show you. Uh, I used to love her. And I was like, okay, because it had D-A and G in it, which that song is essentially Dead Flowers from the Rolling Stones. So <laughs> I sort of learned it. And then immediately my mom's like, are you playing Dead Flowers? And I was like, no, it's Guns N' Roses. And she's like, well, it's also Dead Flowers. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if what it is. I think it's a record store nerd kid, whatever it is. It sounds like you're like me, where like to this day, my ears still perk up when I hear a song that is very popular. And I'm like, wait a minute, but that's also this song, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I like it. I don't know if you ever, uh, one that we, so years ago, we did a replacements cover of Unsatisfied. And we, yeah. so we, we played a little like faster. And yeah. we were like, and we we're like, oh, wow, that's Learn to Fly from. Foo Fighters like learn that's they just took it and made it faster and like you could sing wow you can sing learn to fly over unsatisfied which is really funny oh I did not know that that is interesting stuff yeah right <laughs> okay, and it's like we, we both know that Dave Grohl knows unsatisfied 100 <laughs> percent all right that's cool wow yeah or and also I think it's uh it's either hate it's either fake plastic trees or high and dry. One of those Radiohead songs is "Purple Rain," which is also interesting. Hmm. Yeah, right. Like I, I love when it's unsuspecting, where like yeah. you might you might lift something, and maybe it's just by chance, maybe it's just a coincidence. But yeah, sure. Uh, I like when you can get away with it and make it your own. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's cool. I mean, look, there's only so many chords in the world. You can only put them in so many orders impossible to be original now <laughs> <laughs> exactly um so that sounds like that was the first song you learned how to play on guitar that guns and roses song yeah i i used to love her which is like i went back and listened to like maybe a year or two ago and i was like that's kind of a weird song isn't it <laughs> like i didn't like i didn't get it at the time and like yeah. you know like my, my mom who's very pro you know like she was doing women's rights things in the 60s before anybody was born so my yeah. mom like would kind of hear a tune and and like she would just go i think we're gonna listen to that one again and then that but she wouldn't say anything she would just be like nah it's not this isn't for us and then like it would go away but that one she thought was funny because i guess he's talking about yeah like he's, he's he's talking about like burying his girlfriend <laughs> in his backyard like, which is insane things to say, but I don't know. Like, is it any worse than 2000s emo? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. But I don't. Um, I, don't I, just, I, I just. To me, it strikes me extraordinarily funny. Yeah. Growing up with my mother, that that was the first song I learned to play on the guitar. So. Right. Right. Uh. So then, how soon after you kind of got your head around guitar did you start wanting to do a band? I know that like the first thing that I've seen that uh, you're connected to is uh, was a project called No Release. But like, did you start a like a band with some friends before that? No, because none of my lame friends knew how to play anything. They were so terrible. Like they just wouldn't take the lessons and wouldn't go to the thing. They just did. My friend Joe gave it a good shot, but like. Yeah, yeah. So you started solo. Some people, yeah, not by choice. It was like I wanted to be in a band so bad, and then I just couldn't find a band. Like I couldn't find people who could play. Like, or I couldn't find four of them, you know, yeah. or whatever you needed. Uh, there was only like so many kids who played in bands. It was really weird. There was not a high group of bands. Totally, totally. So then with it being solo, what was the what was the first show you ever played? 
That was probably... Well, it was probably at this cafe. There used to be, like, open mic nights back in the day. And, like, you could go and, and just sort of sign up on this sheet of paper at the door and play, like, whatever, you know, whatever kind of nonsense you wanted to do. So if you wanted to read a poem or, like, sing a song or play the piano or whatever, you could do it. And, it, yeah. and <laughs> so I would go to those and sign up. And then, like, it's a bunch of people who just didn't want to hear anything. They were trying to have coffee. Did you ever do, like, a school talent show or anything like that, like, in front of no. your peers? I never did one. I don't think my school, or if my school had one, I was like, that's lame. I'm not doing that. Smart. That's smart. Yeah. I never, I never was into the school anything. Like I didn't get into school clubs or groups or sports. I just hated it. I despised the institution. (laughs) Oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Like I just wasn't having it. I was like, (laughs) This is not, I'm not going to pretend I like you. I don't, I hate every one of you and I cannot wait to get out of here. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it was not like, I mean, it got a little bit better sometimes, but not really. Right. Like there was like 10 kids that maybe I was like, you're cool. Did you do college? I didn't do college. No way. No. Yeah. Me either. I was done. Once I got Same. out, I was like, Pfft. yeah. Somebody yeah. wants this once I remember in like 11th grade, someone said, yeah, college is uh, college is like high school, but without the friends. And I was like, I already kind of have that. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> I want to tell you about Persistent Vision Records. They are a brand new label that has hit the ground running. They've just reissued two records from Screamo Legends, page 99, the singles collection, as well as document number eight, which is an all-time personal favorite of mine. But they're not just doing reissues. They've also just released a split between Habak and Lagrimas, who are two bands that I've absolutely got my eye on that are so good. You can order these great releases directly through PersistentVisionRecords.com or through DeathWishInc.com. Give them a follow on Instagram at PersistentVisionRecords so you don't miss out on what's coming next. So I listened to, uh, you might, I don't know if this, this, uh, how this makes you feel, but the no remorse stuff is, is you can listen to it. It's on YouTube. Someone uploaded. Oh gosh. And, uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. It's very, it's quite good for someone who's doing that for the very first time. And I was curious about your info. I I was, uh, it's you. I mean, you can hear that you're young, but you know, you hear the promise in it. And that's not me just blowing smoke. Um, what I took from it, uh, from like the couple songs that I listened to is like, it sounds to me like you were listening and totally tell me if I'm wrong, but I hear like a lot of like soul asylum counting crows sort of vibe in there. Is that anything yeah. you're into? Um, yeah, of course. Like during like that might've been one of the first like real breakthroughs I had was I think in, it was I know that it was before the record came out because I was driving home from my mom's friend's house with her and, and we would like hope to catch the song on the radio. And it was the soul asylum, somebody to shove and good song. And like, yeah, it's a really good song. And like that to me, something like ignited when I heard that song and I was like, there's no other song like this that I I've ever come across because it's not guns and roses and it's not Nirvana and like, I don't think I was as mad as Nirvana, like at the time, you know, like 
I just wasn't that mad. So like when he was like screaming and ran, like rolling on the floor, I, I I didn't get it, you know, and I didn't understand anything like whatever. Yeah, of course. But like you know, but when I saw this Soul Asylum guys, I was like, oh, they seem sad, and and like, yeah, I get that. Like this feels sad, and this also feels like frustrated, and that that's what I feel. I don't feel angry. I'm frustrated. I'm like, you know, I don't know. I was primed to be a replacements fan. I was going to say, by what you're describing, the song Misery is is 1,000% up your alley with the Frustrated oh, yeah. Incorporated. Frustrated Incorporated, yeah. What a good line. That should have oh. been a band name. Frustrated Incorporated. Oh, it's man. so good. Yeah, let's start that a band. Guy. You and me. You and me, yeah, let's right? start a band. That's what it's Soul called. All right. Frustrated Incorporated. This is, you know what sucked about Soul Asylum is that they did that. They have so many records I discovered. Totally. So once Grave, Grave Dancers Union came out, I went into a deep soul asylum search um and then they that runaway train thing sucked i hated that song like i was like this is blasphemy i just didn't like it like because sure. I, I didn't understand like why was it it's like this chimey kind of like weirdo boring song and then it was like all the missing kids and everything and i was like yeah okay fine but like they played it to death i wanted to i would like I want to jump out a window rather than ever hear that song again. <laughs> I was going to say, as side A of Grave Dancers Union is is like all the bangers talking about, you know, going back to the conversation of what we had about, you know, albums from the 90s where it's like they just like front loaded that record with all the singles and all of that <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Black I, gold and all that. Yeah, black gold, good. exactly. Uh, I actually do like Runaway Train, but I also oh, respect where right. you're coming from. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Anytime you get a song played to death, but I get, I'll get, i bet if that song came on the radio while you were at the fucking Target or something tomorrow, you'd be like... I'd know every word, for sure. Song, song's pretty good. It's not that bad. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, too, is like they got so famous after that yeah. song that I felt like something just that... It wasn't right. It was like, what happened if, like, like, God bless those guys. I don't want them to not get famous. But, like, maybe, like, the replacements, if they would have got famous, yeah. you know, like, dating Winona Ryder, like, just slipped right in the Hollywood scene. Like, 1,000%. I was made for this. <laughs> also, like, I always, I'm, I remember even at a young age perking up a little bit because, as you know, like, there was a lot of stuff that the labels were sort of feeding us in this sort of, like, we're trying to market it as grunge, but it's clearly not grunge. So yeah. like Soul Asylum and Counting Crows are both like prime examples of like, you are going to your music videos, you're going to dress in tattered clothes and sweaters yeah. and whatever, yeah. but the music is not edgy. It's like good, catchy, melodic pop songs, you know, yeah. or like sad songs. Right. But so Soul Asylum had those other records though. Oh, that for were sure. Like, like, gnarly like hang time it was cool though like they had great songs yeah the album art for hang time is really I good. Know, that was scary. I, think, I think that was the only other album that i think i ever bought from the early stuff because i like you i wanted a deep dive they were actually the last concert that i saw before the shutdown i saw them at the at the teragram it was them in local h and i was like Wow. Okay. Here we, here we go. Yeah, uh, I would go see Soul Asylum any day of the week. I, I, went, I still like that band. I went by myself 
and expecting not to see anyone. And then I saw two random people from like the hardcore scene that was like the most, it was like the most ragtag group of friends to just meet up at this thing and be like, wow, look at us. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, Dave Turner's a guy I would like to like meet one day and just hang, just like hang out with for a second and just be like, what do you like? You know, like, dude, I feel like if you hit that dude up, you two could write a, could write a song or two. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds really, yeah. Let's but, put that. In, let's put that into the ether. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Dave, call me up. I um, like you. I like you, Dave. So, was so the record. So, I mean, it looked like the release for the no release thing was that that like it was like a coffee house cassette or something like like a live. Yeah. Maybe. So, what was the first band that you recorded with? Because I like when you look, you know, like if you're on Wikipedia or something, I see there was like no release, and then Surrogate McKenzie to Amping Copper to then your Brian Fallon like. Uh, the Cincinnati rail tie release. Yeah, were, yeah. Were any of those in like an actual recording studio or were those a lot of four track stuff? Mm, I think actually a friend of ours had gotten a studio and he, he built it and Oh, he was in a recording class. Uh, one of those bands recorded with my friend who was in college, who had a recording class and he was able to record us. Um, so Sarah McKenzie was probably the first one that was in a studio. Like I remember us paying to go to a studio in um, like Dover, New Jersey or somewhere up there. And it was like, fine. I mean, we, we did the best we could. I mean, we, I think that we, we did. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we knew what we were yet, but it was okay. As your time playing music and then recording a lot and things like that throughout all these different bands, are you someone that took to the studio pretty quickly? Is that something that you enjoyed early on and do you still enjoy it today? Um, I did not take to it very quickly. It was very difficult for me, but um, I did like it though. Cause it was, you, that was your, your shot. Anything was possible when you were in there, you know, you never knew if you were making like, let it be or whatever. You didn't know, <laughs> you know, but it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. D did you, um, were you able to recognize you had a good singing voice when you were young? Was that something that was like nurtured or is it something that you kind of found on your own and kind of figured out on your own? I think I just wanted to do it so bad, but my, initially my friends were like, you sound terrible. And I would be like, Damn. okay, like haters. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. They're total haters. Yeah. But like, it, it, not encouraging. And, and then, uh, I don't know, like somewhere along the line, I just, I remember like a moment where I was like, there was a friend of mine who like, you know the kid you'd always get in trouble with? Like, they would do, like, dumb, the dumbest stuff, and they'd be like, but for some reason, they were able to convince you it was a good idea. Totally. And, like, yes. So I had this guy, and, like, uh, like he, he, he once, we were, like, trying to practice together one day, and he was like, you're the worst singer I've ever heard. And I was like, okay. And, but I, like, decided that day, I was like, you know nothing, and I'm going to be famous now. So, like, we're going to see how this goes. And I was like 10, 11, maybe. Or no, 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 no. I had to be 12. I had to be 12 yeah. or 13, so I was playing guitar. Isn't it wild how that stuff sticks with you? Oh, dude, it burned. It was like a fire ignited in me. I never felt like – I was always kind of like a people pleaser sort of default, but that – 
was the first time where I was just like, no, I will, I will burn in hell before you are right. And that was it. No. I mean, you know, it's a double-edged sword where it's like, it it hurts and it stings, but it also makes you be like, fuck you. I'm going to go the other way. Yeah. It was terrible. I was brutalized. I think I've told this. I've told the story like once or twice, but like I had, uh, there was like our friend group and then like my best friend's girlfriend's best friend was like, obviously just like around because it was our big group. And she out of nowhere at lunchtime in like 10th grade just said, the only reason anyone is ever going to like you is because you play in a band. And that has stayed with me my entire life. And it's like one of those things where it's like that's that that's a haunting statement. <laughs> so good. <laughs> why? Yeah. Why do these people? Why do they talk? <laughs> I have never. Said, I don't know. It's so wild. It's like, right. Because I can't imagine saying that to someone. Like even if someone was apropos so of nothing too, where you're just like, why? What? Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Haunting. Um, if if that doesn't make you like re reevaluate everybody in your life uh, for the rest yeah. of your life, you know. Um, anyway, so uh, was Amping Copper like your first full band? Like where? Uh, no, Surrogate McKenzie was the first okay. full band, and okay. we played. That's where we figured out how to play shows, and okay. and like we realized that like. I guess we thought like shows were a venue show. And then all of a sudden, you know, around that time we were into, we had like all the band, like we had figured out that like somehow we had one friend, this guy, Chris, who used to just get every record. He had everything and he would have like Captain Jazz and Mineral and, and all this stuff, Sunny Day, everything, everything you ever wanted to hear. He had American football, like, so many years ago like i have had american football on one side and elliot u.s songs on the other side on a cassette for 20 years easily it, or whatever since they came yeah. out like yeah, and yeah, I, and yeah. I, and this was because of this kid christian he just yeah. had everything and then we'd all discover all this music and he was feeding us like songs and then and then he sort of had like I guess he like he worked his he was like the first one to have a job like a real job, and like I don't know what he was doing like something. We we were like eighteen. He was like a mortgage guy or whatever. So he had like some cash and and he would rent out the Legion halls and like charge five bucks and a can of soup or whatever. And then you'd get in and all these bands play it and we, he would book like actual bands like yeah. bands mistaken for stars and like real bands. And like it was crazy, and we would all play these shows in a Legion Hall with these guys, and it was nuts. Like it was just in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. It was great. Damn. So, uh, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because listening to that era of your music, like, I hear that early emo stuff, and I was curious how yeah. much that sort of connected with you. Like, when Dude. I listened to the Surrogate McKenzie stuff, the song that I saw that I that I was able to listen to is called still 16 sounded like you were into jawbreaker already. Like it's got huge jawbreaker energy. And then amping copper had definite, like you could tell that you owned a mineral record or someone. Yeah. And hot water and all that. And like, it was definitely like that kind of thing. Like we, we just wanted to kind of smash all these bands together. And like, 
think maybe Caven was around then too, and like Shai Halud was one that when okay, when so you're hitting into hardcore too. Yeah, like the guy from Newfound Glory was was in Shai Halud. Yeah, that is the record that we, we had the seven inch and the first record that he's on. I think yeah. it's called like Hearts Once Nourished, something, yep. something, something. And the EP is the Profound, uh, profound the, Hatred of Man. Hatred. Yep. Yes. And the, we loved it because there would be like these beautiful guitar parts over chaos. And we were just like, yeah, 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It was great. But that was the time where I was discovering all that stuff like Jawbreaker and uh, Hot Water and, you know, Elliot and, and, uh, they did false cathedrals had just come out and that blew us all away. Oh man. So, yeah. But I, you know, I don't get, and I don't really, I don't think anybody knows that I really love that music. I, I think it's awesome. I'm sure people who are listening to this are probably perked their ears up and like, Holy shit. That's awesome. Hell yeah. yeah. All uh, that stuff. Did, uh, so, I mean, it's when you listen to all of your project leading up to that first gaslight record, like it sounds like a trajectory of someone who's writing these songs that are going to end up being, gaslight anthem you know what i'm saying like it's so rare to hear yes, someone's yeah, musical I do. journey i know like I, well, none of my friends are like high school bands are on the internet how come everything i ever did is on the internet it pisses me off so bad because i'm like this stuff is the worst like you can't <laughs> find like hey uh you can't find like chuck reagan's high school band frank turner's like recital for his bar mitzvah <laughs> for his friend you i'm on everything you got everything i ever did Sure. Um, I you know, uh, one man's curse is another man's blessing. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are excited about it, but I I, I can understand. I can understand. But yeah, because I'm like, that's me in my underwear. You guys are not looking at me, and that's completely bare bones. Um, but it is cool though. It's cool that people yeah. care enough to like want to find out. You know, totally. Um. We're going to hop into Gaslight stuff, so we're jumping ahead. Actually, real quick, what was the first band that you toured with? Was it Gaslight? Oh, no. Uh, well, what does touring mean? Uh, I mean, there's always the Weekend Warrior thing, but yeah, if, like I would say, you know, Old maybe tour? a week. How about a week tour? Okay, so my first tour went from two days to nine weeks. Oh, and my God. So, yeah, I feel, so there's this band, there's this like pop punk band in New Jersey called Lane Meyer. They were named after the... Uh, the movie, where's my $2, you know, that guy. So yeah. somehow they were looking for a guitar player because their singer and guitar player quit. So the bass player was going to be the singer full time and they just needed a guitar player. And I, I was like, sick, I'll be a guitar player and go on tour because they, I found out they were going on tour with the Lawrence Arms and I was a massive Broadway fan. So I was like, I, I'll do anything. I don't care. So I, I did, I did that tour and it was like, uh, with the Lawrence Arms and um, the other Wonder Years, not this Wonder Years. Oh yeah, the, the W U N D R. Yes, with, yeah, uh, Brian. Brian. Ross. Yeah, yeah, that, incredible songwriter. That band, and, the Ghost. Whoo! Oh yeah, great band. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. So, so Brian's bands, um, and then the, you know there was uh, Caitlin was in that band, and um, a guy. I want to say his name was Scott. I hope that's his name. Sure. And then there's another there's another guy whose face I can clearly see and cannot remember his name. And he was lovely, lovely. But uh, anyway, so that was the first tour. Nine and a half weeks. Terrible. So hard. I wanted to kill myself after I got home from that tour. 
And did you, but so it's so funny when you feel that way, when you get home, like, were you then romanticizing it eventually? Or were you like, or was it hard for you to want to get back in the van and do like gaslight stuff? Yeah, it was because like, well, no, because that wasn't my band. And like, I tried to like intersect myself into that band in the end. They were like, well, they're like, if you have any songs, like bring them out. So I had some songs and I I brought them over and, and I don't know, there was like a harsh resistance because I think in their mind, they, they wanted to go like really, you know, the pop punk route, um, which was big at that time, I guess like newfound glory was big, those kind of bands. And that's fine. Like th- those are fine bands, whatever. It's just not, it, w- it wasn't my thing. So I was, I was on a hard path, angular, like, you know, Jade tree, like those bands, like, uh, you know, yeah. Holly vinyl, like no idea records, like pre against me, all that. Like, yeah. I was like, ah, like I want to make my guitar go. Rah! And then yeah. they weren't having that. So, uh, I, I, I got out of that pretty quick. And then I still went on the search for my own band, and it took another six years. Because this charming man was pre-Gaslight, right? Like that was the name before, and yeah. like kind of the members ended up forming into what became Gaslight, right? Yeah, like that didn't last for very long. That was like totally. maybe I want to say a year or less. Yeah, and and that just kind of like, you know, like yeah. a, a friend of ours said they were like you really want to be tied to the Smiths for the rest of your life? And I was like, well, yeah. And they're like, no, you don't. And they're right. like, you got to change the name. And I was like, okay. So, so we did. And then, totally. and then sort of just progressed. Then like a couple members went, a couple members stayed. And then, and then it became a gaslight. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, Visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T work coffeebar.com. What was your first European tour? 2007 in Europe. Gunnar Gunner Christensen, uh, he booked it for us and we played like squats and DIY venues and like punk houses and like art spaces. It was really, really awesome. Hell yeah. I'm glad it was a good time. Cause that's also tough. Those are tough when you're, drinking, oh, when you're, yeah, you're eating punk tough. stew every day and you're, you know, yeah, it just, to me, it was just like, I was so on a mission. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I was just like, cool. It's chilly again, whatever. Like, let's yeah. go. And I yeah. was just, I was living on cigarettes and like dreams. <laughs> I have such a I have such a fond memory of uh, the the first time that we played Reading and Leeds. Uh, you guys played, um, oh, yeah. and pu- Pucal Pop as well. And yeah. one of my favorite memories is we were standing side stage for you guys during um, Pucal Pop, and like all of us were just like air drumming along and just like having the best time. And then when we played Reading and Leeds, we looked over and Benny was air drumming to us and our entire fucking 
brains melted where we were like, oh my God. And yeah, that was like one of the most special like experiences <laughs> to like, cool. where it was like the first time where we all of a sudden felt like we actually had, like we could be peers with some people as opposed to like yeah. us just being super fans, you know? Right, right. Um, I completely get it. So uh, moving along, um, something that I really, really love uh, about your lyrics and as a lyricist is like you're a highly um, rev- reference heavy person and yes. I love that I love yeah. whether it's like you're referencing uh, Miles Davis on the waterfront like fucking uh, Tom Waits even Counting Crows uh, yeah. things like that so like I love that I do it a, a bit too I'm curious what it is about doing that that you connect to is it do you like bringing a listener in and having that sort of secret code language or were there artists that were doing it that like inspired you to do that? Where does that come from? Well, I, I got it from New York hip hop. So they, they were always constantly like, I thought it was, you know, I was doing it as like kind of like a mission uh, for like the scene. And I thought it was paramount that, you named where you came from and what you were into for the progression of, of the scene of, of music. And I thought, you know, cause I still viewed us, I I'm from that age where we still, you know, there was like scenes and whatever, you know, yeah. and I, I view like the punk scene is like a world or at least a nationwide or worldwide scene now, especially traveling. But, uh, you know, I think that the people who are like-minded are, are really a group of people. And I think like letting people know where that comes from, I think it, it, it it's like a, it's like a story, you know, like, the, like they used to not write things down and they would just tell people the stories. And, and that's how they, they would just carry on through generation and generation of the stories. And they yeah. were so like good at telling the facts that like they didn't change. It wasn't like a game of telephone. And so I always wanted to be like the musical version of that. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the first Gaslight record, uh, I had totally forgot Sink or Swim until I was, you know, prepping for this interview that Josh Jacobowski re- was a part of that and like recorded it. Oh, yeah and, yeah. and I had always known him in the periphery and then we became, uh, you know, friendly later on. But like that guy's like screamo guitar legend, you know, like with Neil Perry, Joshua Fit for Battle, The Now, like all these bands. And I was curious, like, was was he someone that you were seeing and sh- like going to shows and stuff like that? Or was he someone that was just had a studio that you recorded at? Well, he was just he he was like the guy who's like, you know, when I say label, I mean, like basement label. Like yeah. we're packing we're packing boxes in the living room however believed in us and but josh came from he was friends with him and so i i don't benny might have known who he was i didn't yeah. know him and oh, i just okay. thought he was like a cool guy like yeah. he, he but he was really encouraging and helpful during sink or swim like we i mean we did that thing in five days or less so it was like he was really really cool I was curious about with Senior and the 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 Queen where because that came out the same year as Fifty Nine Sound, right? But I'm assuming just like earlier in the year. I don't I don't know yeah. how well you remember the stuff, but um, that recording is very raw. And I was curious, yeah. like, what the situation there what, was. It you guys wanting to capture like a quick raw sound because like Sink or Swim, as much as it's your first record, like it's a very 
it's i mean that's a well-produced fucking thing and i love the rawness of, of senior and the queen but like what was the motivation for that specific event you know i don't think we we did not think about any of that stuff like it was just we went um jordan from sabbath had uh booked us three days in a um in a studio in texas uh called the sweat box in austin which was appropriate, no air conditioning. (laughs) Um, And we just literally did not know how to play together and just got in the room and did it live. And that was it. Like there was no, no frills. So, I mean, that, that was just like a, it was just punk. (laughs) Yeah. No. uh, Yeah. And I mean, I think that that adds to the energy of that release. I remember, getting that double seven inch when it came out and just like getting super hyped because I liked sink or swim but then that came out and I was like okay this band's really onto something and then just obviously 59 sound comes out and just you know does so much for for you guys and I think introduces so many people to like I think you guys brought in a lot of people rediscovering stuff like Springsteen and like you know just opened up a lot of eyes to a lot to this specific sound and I'm curious because those songs are so, um, they sound like you guys have been playing those songs and writing those songs for like 20 years, you know, like they feel so lived in. <laughs> and I'm curious, do you, do you think that that was you guys figuring out your sound or do you feel like Ted Hutt uh, producing had a lot to do with that? Because he's someone that you obviously ended up going to a ton throughout yeah. the rest of your life. Um, what do you, what do you attribute that to? I mean, both like, cause the, you know, the, the band was just, we were just living and eating and sleeping and breathing each other all the time. There was nothing, you know, like uh, my friends used to joke when we were on tour that they would go party and I would go in the van with the acoustic guitar and write songs. And they were like, why don't you come hang out? And I was like, man, I got something to do, dude. Like I'm trying, like this is it. Nobody's going to do this for me. Like I I got a thing and I I got, I don't know. I don't have time for whatever you're doing. So it, it was just like I was on a path, and and then and then I think and Ted just was the right guy for us. He just understood what we were doing, and was able to very clearly articulate it. You know, yeah. and he just like I, I it was a magic meeting. I think and yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, your writing career is obviously extremely prolific. Like you, I mean, Gaslight put out a record every two years, which is really awesome and then obviously you ended up doing horrible crows and you did uh uh, your own solo records and things like that um knowing going back to the start of this conversation about pearl jams 10 and all of that how was it for you going to brendan o'brien for hand for it was for handwritten right yeah yeah Uh, i mean yeah (laughs) like (laughs) brendan brendan would he's brendan's not like a like an easy hank like he's 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 a real hard dude sometimes, and he says stuff that like most people would put a little sugar on it, and, and <laughs> Brendan does not does not put sugar on it, you know. And I'm I'm in a band with a bunch of guys from like New Brunswick, New Jersey. That just they don't that doesn't stick well with them. Like oh yeah, you know, like they're not like if you say something like that, like you know they 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 don't they don't really take it too well from especially not from a guy who's like got a swimming pool and like 20,000 million airplanes or whatever he's got you know i don't totally. know but they, they just didn't take it too well whereas i was like i was you could roll me down the hill in a trash can just kick the harder you kick me i know you're going to get better so i i loved brendan 
and they absolutely hated it. And I don't know that Brendan, not everybody hated Brendan, but certain people really hated Brendan. And I think Brendan didn't like them so much either. So it was like, it was a weird time where I was being like, yeah. And everybody else was kind of like, but as a band, couldn't do you do you hear that friction when you listen to the record or do you feel like that oh yeah i was gonna say like i mean it's it's such a clear you know because as a band we we had everything all of our ducks were in a row before brendan even got in the room oh true okay and also too like when brendan would be like too much of like like you know getting too hard on the guy like we would all freeze him out we had this thing where we would just freeze him out so if he would like pick on one of us the whole band would would freeze him out, and we wouldn't we wouldn't speak to him. So if he hit the the, the talk back, he's like, "All right, guys, get blah 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 blah." We would only answer Nick, the engineer, because we were like, "Nah, man, if you can talk to us like that, we're not talking to you." But it was like in good fun. It yeah, was like, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't mean. It wasn't male. It wasn't like testosterone driven. It was just really funny. We were just like, it was just a nation of ball busters in the same room, and yeah. like. The guy, some of the guys didn't like it. Brendan was hard. Like he would be like, "No, you're flat. Sing it right. You got to sing it right." He's like, "We're in a professional studio. I'm a professional. You're a professional. Sing it right. You can't sing it wrong. I'm not gonna let you do that." And he wouldn't. He wouldn't just fix it. He would just yeah. like make you do it. But like, I took to that kind of makes you stronger. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and and like, one of the guys in particular was just like not having it. Yeah, no, I get it. I, some people react different ways to it. And yeah, it it really shows the thick skin. And it's like, you don't have, you're not supposed to have thick skin in those situations, but sometimes it is, uh, it's helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it could have been nicer. To, oh, to no, one, oh, 1,000%. One yeah, no, but like, it's generational too, you know, where it's yeah. like dudes like that came up and people probably kicking him you know, as hard as he's yeah. kicking you guys. And it's just, exactly. it's that unfortunate trickle down situation. And uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's tough. Um, I wanted to quickly, before, before we start wrapping up here, uh, I mean, the new record is, you guys did it with Peter Cattis, right? Cat- Cattis? Yeah, Cattis. Cattis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know you had done a solo record with him as well, right? Yeah. Um, what brought you to him? I'm a huge fan of like the National and stuff like that. And he's done so many brilliant records and i'm curious what what it is like working with him and like what what made uh you want this new gaslight record to be done with him well who who's the who did in utero who recorded that steve albini okay so i i've read a lot about that record and i read a lot about kurt's relationship with steve some places say it was great some people say it was terrible whatever but I do know that Nirvana wanted to do like the anti Nevermind, and they wanted to go in there and do this like messy record that sounded like more like the Melvins and Sonic Youth. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Let's go. To me, Peter is like that's Peter. Peter's like the the. I know that Peter's made very successful records, but at his heart, Peter is like gnarly. Like he wants to make weirdo Dinosaur Junior records and. Sigur Ross singers records like that you know I don't even know if there's any words on them whatever but like but records that make you feel something and Peter is like how I imagine Steve Albini in the 90s would have been like just like absolutely shunning all conventional methods but just 
I don't know, but just making like this piece of art that's like makes you feel something like and a lot of people say like we can't hear the vocals like make the vocals louder. I'm like, listen, 2023, calm down. This was done for a purpose. You know why? Because now you have to listen. Yeah. So and we 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 just said like, well, why? Because the vocal is not the most important thing. It's part of a whole. So it's not going to be the loudest thing. And we did that on purpose with this last record. So, I mean, we had, we had Springsteen on it. We could have slammed the vocal, you know, and we were just like, yeah. no. Because it's more important for us at this stage to just make something that makes you feel something rather than something that satisfies your sort of like pre. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like your, your pre, uh, your appetite that you want. Like we're not always going to just give you the thing. Yeah. You got to work for it sometimes. A little bit. Yeah. But every uh, band I truly love has done that to me. With having Springsteen on that track, was that a situation that you had written that part or did you guys co-write that song together? No, he just asked me to, to do, uh, he was like, can you write us a duet? And I was like, no, because <laughs> I can't, you know, I was like, I can't. I, I mean, I said, yes, I was like, sure. And then uh, I went home and was like, I can't do this. Like, this is absurd. How am I going to, how am I going to write? Like, what do you mean? I'm going to write a duet for Bruce to sing on. Like, okay, but I'm going to write a guitar part for Jimi Hendrix to play. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not happening. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to write all the songs. And when they're done, we'll all decide. So we went in the studio, like, and we were just like, what song do you think Bruce should sing on? And everybody was like, history books. Cool. Sent it to him. Yeah. That was it. And he was like, oh, that's awesome. I like it. Yeah. That's... So I didn't write it with him. Nothing. It was like, there's a version of it with just me on it. There is the footage of you guys playing Glastonbury where yeah. he comes out and plays with you. Was that the first time you guys had ever done that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then uh, I had only met him about five minutes before that. Are you kidding me, man? No. He showed up. He showed up to our trailer in the back and it was with the cops. And I was like, somebody in my band is going to jail. That's what I, I, I knew it. And I was like, this is not good. And we were right about to play Glastonbury about five minutes before. And he gets out of the car and I'm like, Bruce Springsteen. And he like comes over and he's like, Hey, can I play the 59 sound with you? And my first word was, do you know it? And he's like, yeah, I know it. And I was like, okay, then you can play it. See ya. And then we had to go. Like there was no talking. There was nothing. It was just like, yeah, all right. All right. I got to go play Glastonbury. I don't know what you're doing. If the people listening could see my face right now, that is the craziest fucking it, thing. The, it's just safe. Knowing that. And then Rick, cause I rewatched that footage last night. Like you can see Benny smiling ear to ear. Yeah. On draw. You know, like you could tell that this is, and there's a moment where you two are singing, we're sharing the mic. And you have such a pure expression on your face of like pure joy. And Bruce is giving that same joy back to you. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's some of the most moving footage I've it's ever wild. seen. Yeah. I what mean, a story, know, man. For me, like that was so more, much more powerful than anybody I think talks about. Like they always talk about like Bruce and us and how it affected us. But to us, it was like, it was every kid from any town that ever got in a van with their friends and slept with toilets leaking in the basement and cockroaches and toured Europe and cried because they were freaked out in another country with no cell phone. Like 
it's it's for anybody who's ever like gotten sick on tour and, and and we were doing it for everybody it was not just for us we were like if we could do it you damn sure could do it and let's do this and we're ah and it really that it meant everything to us man i'm so stunned right now what a what a fucking story um <laughs> I hope that this doesn't trump this next question, but uh, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? <laughs> well, probably then. But no, you know what, man? Like, it wasn't then. It was like, there was this time, I think there was, we, you know, I sat down outside of the recording of the 59 sound and I like looked at Ted and I was like, dude, I'm like, this is some epic, epic thing. Like, this is a good record. And he's like, we're not going to talk about it. He's like, I know what you're saying. I feel what you're saying. We're not talking about it. And he's like, let's just talk. Let's go back to work. And I was just like, all right, cool, cool, cool. And like, But I knew, I just knew. I was like, this is the moment. I'm like, we've been waiting for this. This is our shot. And like, I think when I wrote the 59 sound, I was sitting on the floor and I was living in my parents' like apartment in, in, in a bedroom. And it was right before we went and played like this hometown throwdown uh, in Boston that the Boston's used to do. And it was like us, the bouncing souls, the Boston's obviously headline and somebody else. I don't remember who else was there. Forgive me, whoever that was. Yeah, sure. Um, but like it, I, we wrote it right before that we practiced the song once. And I remember playing it at soundcheck on the stage of the middle East. And I, I was like, this is the song. I was like, every other song we've written, I don't know if it, I'm like, this is different. This is a real song. This is like a song that could like matter to people. And I knew it. And I was like, buzz it. And it's just like, I knew. I don't know. Man. Yeah. It was wild. I love it. I love it. The yeah. first time, the first time I saw you guys, I think was that show at the key club that was a benefit with Alkaline Trio and Broadway calls. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember that. And I remember I I you know, I like Alkaline Trio as much as the next guy, but I went to that show cuz I I was so excited to see you guys play and hear those songs live for the first time and just yeah. <laughs> cool. Man. <laughs> I think I saw like I I saw like so many like LA people that night like like from, you know, and I was like Cause you're right next to the rainbow room. So like you're, you're, yeah, that's, that's where you'll walk down the street and be like, wow, there's screech from saved by the bell, but also like, uh, you Marilyn know, Marilyn Manson. Or yeah, somebody. exactly. You're like, what? you're like, what the fuck? I think he was there. Cause yeah. I remember being like, is that Marilyn Manson? And like kind of chuckling, you know, to myself, like being a punk rock kid and being like, ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> Just being a jerk. Man, dude, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, man. And good luck yeah. on the tour. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on here. This is great. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Brian for coming on. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Ryan Rainbow. Shout out to him. And I want to remind you that there is a bonus episode available right now where Brian Fallon answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your week. 
I'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye.